Good morning. My guess is that uh, most of you spent a very nice day yesterday celebrating the 4th of July and gave very little thought to St. Stephen's. Um, so today is St. Stephen's Day where we're going to talk a little bit about St. Stephen's and the 4th of July. As I hope you're aware by now, we are using a little bit of a different uh, prayer uh, ritual than the usual form of worship, and I, I think that's generally a good thing to be reminded of our rich and unique heritage by using actual historical texts. I'm the only exception, I think, to today's lesson um, in using a more modern text. My mother always told me I was exceptional, but I don't think she had this in mind. Um, reflecting on the historical text always gives us a, a chance to think about where we came from, the struggles, the successes that our previous generations encountered, all of which bring us here to this point. And I hope it reminds us of our common goals and our great good fortune to be members of this parish. During our regular service, uh, there comes a point when we say together, we who are many are one body because we all share one bread and one cup. During today's historical worship, that one cup has a strong historical connection, and I want to share with you some of the context in which the idea of one cup demonstrates the benefits of being one body. Let's start by working backwards in time. In 1993, Dick Gilchrist, who was the rector of the church at the time, received a package from Mr. Jeff Connolly of Lakehurst, Ohio. The package contained an object that had belonged to one of his distant relatives, and Mr. Connolly thought this object should be returned to where his relative had used it and where it was more appropriate to keep than the attic in his own home. His distant relative was the Reverend William H. Williams, rector of this church from 1854 to 1863. Now, we don't know a lot about Reverend Williams. He is best known in our church history, however, as having presided over improvements to the third of our four churches, the church that preceded this building. Those improvements included the purchase of a new organ and the construction of a whole new building wing to house a new chancel, a stained glass window, a pulpit, and a font. When the work was completed in 1858 at a cost of $2,000, it resulted in a significant and unplanned for increase in the debt of the church. In light of this increase, Reverend Williams offered his resignation, but he was turned down by the unit, by the vestry. He then served for a further five years. The object that was sent to us that belonged to Reverend Williams was a chalice. And the connection to our church is that this chalice was believed to have been used during Reverend Williams' time here. The chalice is somewhat unremarkable except for two things. Uh, it is made from pewter, a metal that we don't really use much this day, these days. And uniquely from a historical perspective, it was made here in America in the latter half of the 18th century by famous pewter craftsmen. As I said, we don't use pewter much today, but in colonial America it was a common material used for making dinnerware such as plates, bowls, tankards, mugs, and the like. Pewter actually dates from the Bronze Age around 3000 to 1200 BC, and it reached its peak in popularity in the 12th to 18th centuries, mostly in Europe. Pewter is an alloy made mostly of tin, along with smaller amounts of copper, alimony, uh, antimony, bismuth, and sometimes lead. 
it's a soft metal, and that's its advantage and both its, it's both its advantage and disadvantage, because as a soft metal, it's easy to work with. You can hammer it into pieces that are bowls, I'm sorry, plates or spoons or forks, and it can also be easily worked with if you're making molds to attach a handle to a cylinder to make a tankard. Its disadvantage also is that it is soft because after repeated uses, it tends to go out of shape. It's said that in colonial America, a pewter piece lasted for only about 10 years. So we are fortunate to have in our possession a piece of pewter that has lasted perhaps more than 200 years. Pewtering was a craft profession, and that meant that craftsmen served as an apprentice for at least seven years, and it was often a family business and sometimes spanned several generations. We know that our chalice was made by Frederick Bassett. His signature is on the imprint on the chalice. He was the last of the line of a leading family of pewterers working in New York City beginning in 1707. His tankards, bowls, and plates are considered excellent examples of pewter craftsmanship and are in several museum collections of fine early American crafts. Like Williams, we don't know much about Frederick Bassett. We know that he was born in New York in 1740. He died there in 1800. He worked almost exclusively in New York City from 1764 until 1799, but worked in Hartford for a short period of time from 1780 to 1785. It's unclear how or when Bassett's chalice came into the church or Reverend William's possession. We can't even be sure of what year the chalice was made or whether it was actually made in New York or made in Hartford. Crucially then, we are unsure of whether this chalice is, belongs to Red Sox Nation or the Yankee faithful. <laughs> Mysteries abound. We can't even be certain, 100% certain, that the chalice, for the years that this chalice was used here in, the, in St. Stephen's. But it is indeed an integral part of our historical worship. Putting aside some of these unknown facts, two sets of dates stand out for me when I began to research the William Chalice, and those dates resonate with yesterday's uh, historic celebration. The first set of dates point out that with Frederick Bassett active from 1764 onwards, it was quite possible that the chalice was crafted during the American Revolution. And if not during the wars of the American Revolution themselves, then perhaps just before, during the growing resistance to British rule, or perhaps just after the war, when we were at work developing and adopting our Constitution and becoming an independent America. And so we have an actual object that links quite nicely to our Independence Day celebration and the founding of our nation. The second set of dates is that of William's tenure. He began his work here in March of 1854 and continued until October of 1863. Those are two important dates in our next upheaval in American history, what we in the North refer to as the Civil War and what is called in the South the War Between the States. 1854 was the year that saw the defeat of the Missouri Compromise and led to the opening of slave states in the West. Those openings led to the further development of divisions between the North and the South and the West and hastened the war that we call the Civil War. 1863 is an important date for in January of that year, Abraham Lincoln delivered the Emancipation Proclamation. 
In this July of that year, Union and Confederate forces fought at the battles of Gettysburg. When we look back at our history, we tend to see an inevitable development in black and white of obvious good and evil. We know, however, that this is not the case. Point in fact, the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. In the War for Independence, it's easy to portray all of our ancestors as an aggrieved and righteous populace standing up to the overbearing monarch across the sea. Yes, some felt this way, but not all. In fact, it is estimated that before the battles of Lexington and Concord, only about one-third of the American colonists thought that separation was a good idea. In our own town, we had a meeting to sustain the resolution of whether or not we should separate from the crown. That resolution was defeated by a narrow margin. Several months later, the resolution was resurrected and the resolution was supported, again, by a narrow margin. It's hard for me to imagine how neighbors could have interacted with each other day by day after having taken such a strong vote on a very divisive issue. Yet interact they did, and on they moved, and progress was made. Not everyone was satisfied with that vote. There were some families who were hounded out of Ridgefield because of their pro-British views, and their properties and goods were confiscated. During the Civil War, we tend to think of ourselves as a pro-abolitionist state, but in fact, Connecticut was known as the Georgia of the North because of its pro-slavery stance. Even though Connecticut contributed one of the highest percentage of recruits to the Northern Army, very few of those soldiers fought to end slavery. And here we have, in our own town, pro-abolitionists meeting with people who were in favor of slavery every day, interacting with these neighbors. We are fortunate today that, unlike our forebearers in the 1770s and 1860s, we do not have to go to war over the social issues that divide us, such as abortion, same-sex marriage, or health care. But like them, we do have to interact with our neighbors, and perhaps even family, who hold opposing views. And here is where we share a commonality with the chalice, with what the chalice represents. In a time when that pewter chalice was made, and in the time that Reverend Williams was our rector, during those very divisive times, parishioners in St. Stephen's continued to gather together in worship as one body by the simple yet powerful act of sharing one bread and one cup. Differences of opinion or of conscience will continue, yet once a week for a short time, we can find time to put aside those differences and come together as one body in this sanctuary. John tells us in chapter 14 that we can indeed be together. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwellings. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. I have to think that that Father's house is very, very large, large enough to accommodate the many dwelling places that are needed to contain the range of opinions and outlooks that separate us into different groups, into different dwellings. But the beauty of the Father's house is that we are all welcome in that house. And one way to get there is through one bread and one cup. Later in today's service, during communion, when I take the wine, 
That chalice reminds me that I am one body, not only with those parishioners who went before me, who suffered during war to secure the liberties and freedoms that we enjoy today, but that I am one body with parishioners here today who, like me, only want the best according to their judgments, and who, like me, differ from one another in some ways, but find a place in the Father's house where our hearts can be untroubled together. So come to the table, you who have much faith, and you who would like to have more. You who have been here often and you who have not been for a long time. You who have tried to follow Jesus and you who have failed, come. It is Christ who invited us to meet him here. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. We who are many are one body because we share one bread and one cup. Amen.